Paperlike is a magical screen protector for your iPad that makes it feel like you are writing on paper. I use my iPad to take notes for school and to journal and to plan my whole life out, and I love that I get the convenience of writing on my iPad with the comfort of it feeling like I'm writing or drawing on paper. To pick up your own Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com gruesome, click buy Paperlike, and select your iPad size. From now until January, Paperlike is also including their Digital Pro Planner Bundle at no extra cost with every order placed through the Paperlike store. Plus, shipping is completely free. Ready to do more with your iPad? Head over to paperlike.com gruesome to get started. Welcome to Gruesome, your horrific true crime podcast. I am Connie, along with my patron saint of sanity, Meg. Today, she is going to talk to us about the missing Stodder children. I can't be your patron saint of sanity because I have none left myself. You have more than I (laughs) (laughs) You have more than I do. Um, Connie and I pulled a switcheroo on you because she's feeling a little ouchy in the throat. So I'm going to do today's episode. Yeah. If I, if I do a full episode, (laughs) you're going to hear that like the whole time and nobody wants to hear that because I don't even want to hear that. I've been sleeping on the couch because my husband who snores has a CPAP, like the whole shebang. It's like, this is the most annoying thing I've ever had to encounter, like trying to go to sleep. And I'm like, oh, really? This is annoying for you. Try living it. Like he said, you're annoying him because you're coughing? Yeah, because it was so bad last night because I was coughing and then I would vomit snot, (laughs) which is like the worst thing I've ever experienced. But like if I lay flat down, like I try to like lay in bed flat and it was just like, constant and I was like okay so I slept like upright in a chair oof well I'm sorry that you're feeling yucky especially Christmas week oh my god I've nothing wrapped nothing's done I haven't baked I have like three gingerbread houses we're supposed to do just Christmas is paused pause we'll do it next week it's fine Mm -hmm. well in true Christmas theme I think that this case comes up a lot around Christmas time. In fact, we almost both did this case without warning each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, we haven't, and I wanted to. So your trigger warnings for the week are arson, your house burning in general, uh, child death, kidnapping. And, you know, I kind of thought we should throw like a fascism trigger in there for shigs. <laughs> like, we'll talk about it. It's not that big of a deal, but some people it might be. On December 24th, 1945, Christmas Eve, a fire ripped through the Sauter family home. George Sauter, his wife Jenny, and their nine children were living there at the time. They do have one older child that was not living there. George, Jenny, and four of the siblings escaped the fire, but five of the children were never and have never been found. Did 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 9-year-old Louis, 
eight-year-old Jenny and five-year-old Betty truly die in the fire? George and Jenny didn't believe so, and they erected a billboard along Route 16 in Fayetteville, West Virginia, to enlist the help of anyone who might have information about their children. George Sauter was born in 1895. He immigrated to the United States at age 13. Um, he came with his older brother, but his older brother, as soon as they had cleared customs, went back to Italy. Like, they got to Ellis Island, and he was like, well, see you later. Went right back. George would... <laughs> see, all I needed to see here. <laughs> Pretty much, you're like, wow. The Statue of Liberty. I almost said the Statue of Litterby. Like that. But... <laughs> <laughs> the Statue of Litterby. Uh, George would rarely talk about why he had immigrated, which will kind of come into play later um, when we talk more about what happened. George eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, carrying water and supplies to workers. After a few years, he began working as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia, before eventually starting his own trucking company. He would haul fill dirt to construction sites before he moved into hauling coal that was mined in West Virginia. He met his match in Jenny Cipriani, a Smithers shopkeeper's daughter who had also emigrated from Italy. The Sauters settled near Fayetteville, West Virginia, just outside of town. Fayetteville had a large population of Italian immigrants. Uh, they lived in a two-story timber frame house two miles north of town. In 1923, 20 years after George had first come over from Italy, he and Jenny had the first of their 10 children. George's business really prospered. The Sodders became what the community would describe as a well-respected family. However, in this community of Italian immigrants, George had strong opinions and was not shy about expressing them. One that he often let, it often left him alienated, was his strong opposition to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, which, like, I don't know, wasn't Mussolini, like, Hitler's inspiration? Like, <coughs> it's something like that. Good for George for being vocal about his well, opposition. Like, being like, hey, not a fan. Yeah, not, not my favorite person. Except he was probably, like, you know, boisterous about it. More mm -hmm. boisterous. Uh, Mussolini was deposed and executed in 1943. Uh, however, George's criticism of the late dictator apparently left some with very hard feelings. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to Sylvia Sauter being born. Sylvia is the youngest child of the Sauter. She was born in 1942. And at this point, when she's born in 1942, their oldest son is 21. And he had just left to go serve during World War II. And then we'll fast forward a little bit more. In October 1945, a door-to-door -door salesman for life insurance was rebuffed by George and he angrily warned him that his house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Maybe not the thing to say if you don't make a sale. Like, you're not going to come back later and make that sale after you said something like that. No. He continued on reasoning that this would happen for all of the dirty remarks he had been making about Mussolini. A strange visitor told George that a pair of fuse boxes could cause a fire someday 
which confused George since he had just had the house rewired. They got a new electric stove and they had it rewired and installed. The local electric company had said afterwards, totally safe, all good to go. In the weeks before Christmas that year, George's older sons had noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town, and it seemed like its occupants had been watching the younger Sodder children as they returned home from school. So these are all just strange little circumstances that happen Mm -hmm. before Christmas Eve. But like most families, the Sodder family was celebrating on Christmas Eve 1945. Marion, who was 19 and the oldest daughter, she'd been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville. She returned home and surprised the three younger girls with gifts, Martha, Jenny, and Betty. She got them all new little toys from the dime store, and they were so excited, and they asked their mom, could we please stay up late? At 10 p.m., mom Jenny told them that they could stay up a little later. 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Lewis were responsible for putting the cows in and feeding the chickens before going to bed themselves. The girls were expected to go to bed when the boys had finished those chores. John, who was 22, and George Jr., who was 16, had spent the day working with their father and they were already asleep. After reminding the children of those remaining chores, Jenny took Sylvia, who was two at the time, upstairs with her and then went to bed. The telephone rang at 12.30 a.m. Jenny woke and went downstairs to answer it. The caller was a woman whose voice she did not recognize, asking for a name she was not familiar with. The sound of laughter and glasses clinking in the background confused Jenny, and she told her that she thought she had reached the wrong number. She heard a laugh and then a click. Much later, Jenny would recall the woman's weird laugh. She returned to bed. As she was going back to her own bed, she noticed that the lights were still on and that the curtains were not drawn. Usually, these were two things that the children, like, they were responsible for doing these things if they're up later than their parents. Jenny had also noticed that Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so she kind of just assumed that the other children who had stayed up later had gone to the attic where they slept. She took the time to close the curtains and turn out the lights before she was finally able to return to bed. And Jenny was having a rough night because at 1 a.m. she was awoke again. This time by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang. Followed by a rolling noise. It was like bang and then sounded like something was rolling off the roof. She waited for a minute to see if she could hear anything else but no more noise followed so she just went back to sleep. But at around 1.30, she woke up again, this time because she smelled smoke. As she rushed out of bed, she found that the room George used as his office was on fire, specifically around the telephone line and fuse box had come up in flames. Jenny frantically woke George Sr. and rushed to wake their older sons. Both parents and four of their children Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr. escaped the house. So, like, the three oldest um, and then the youngest. They frantically yelled to the children upstairs, but they heard no response. And what I believe is every parent's worst nightmare, they couldn't get up the stairs because they were on fire. So, in a little side note, John, in his first police interview after this fire, said that he went up to the attic and told his siblings, like, hey, get up, we got to go, everything's on fire. 
but he changed his story and said that he had only called up there, but he didn't actually see them. So I'm guessing it was just a lot. I would say he probably yeah, that's did just a lot. to <laughs> yell like, hey, hey, get up. You know, we got to go. One of their first efforts to rescue the kids trapped in the home was thwarted. First, the phone didn't work. So Marion had to run to a neighbor's house to call the fire department. And around the same time, a driver on the nearby road saw the flames, so they also called the fire department from a tavern that they were headed to. Marion's attempted phone call was unsuccessful for potentially a few reasons. I'm not really sure which it was, but it was they either couldn't reach the operator or the neighbor's phone was also broken. So there's a couple of different options there. Both have been reported. Eventually... Someone was successful in reaching the fire department from a phone in the center of town. George Sr., while barefoot and probably running on pure adrenaline, climbed up his home's outside wall to try to bust open an attic window. But during this, he cut his arm and was unsuccessful. Another plan had been that George and his older sons would use the ladder and raise it to the attic to rescue the other children. But mysteriously, the ladder was not in its usual spot, resting against the house, and it could not be found anywhere nearby at the time. The next idea was that they had a water barrel. They could use the water barrel to extinguish the fire. But after opening the barrel, they found that the water was frozen solid. George then tried to pull both of the large trucks he used in his business up to the house, and he was like, okay, we're going to pull the trucks up and we'll use those to climb up the house. But neither of them would start, despite the fact that they had worked perfectly the previous day. The Sodders who had escaped watched helplessly as their house burned down and collapsed over the course of 45 minutes. Heartbroken, they assumed that the other five children had died in the blaze. And if you're like, Someone called the fire department. You're right. But the fire department was low on manpower because all of the able-bodied men had been sent to war. And they really were doing like a phone chain to from each able-bodied man that was still available. And that was 0% effective for a house that's already burning. It took them seven hours to get there after someone finally got a hold of it. That's and it burned down in 45 minutes, so even if it had taken them two hours, it was too late. Because of this, they didn't show up till the next morning, or that morning, because it was already late. Adding to this, the chief, F.J. Morris, said that the slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck. The chief could not drive a fire truck, and I- he had to... What? Why are you a chief if you can't drive a fire truck? Right. I feel like that's in the requirements. Like, hey. Yeah, like, I'm not sure about be... you. <laughs> I post job descriptions. <laughs> he really, uh, like, made his resume. He lied on his resume. That's why. Yeah, he definitely lied on his resume. I mean, I've been there. I get it. <laughs> but you, you know what? You weren't putting lives in danger when you lied on your resume. I wasn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, so, so part of that was that because he couldn't drive the fire truck, he had to wait until someone in the phone chain was reached and then got to where the fire truck was and then could drive the fire truck. That's insane. Oh my God. One of the firefighters was Jenny's brother. 
And so they get all get there and everyone's looking, but they there's really nothing to do. All they can do is look through the ashes that are left in the basement and the bony remains of this house. And they were thinking, like, maybe we'll find, you know, bones of these five children that were missing. Maybe we'll find organs. Maybe we'll find anything. But by 10 a.m., Chief Morris told the Sodders something strange. They had not found any bones. If the other children had been in the house as it burned, finding some type of remains would have been expected. There was another count that said that they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. Um, and it's been noted by modern fire professionals that their search was not as thorough as it should have been. Despite this, Chief Morris believed that the five unaccounted for children had died in the fire by suggesting that it had been hot enough to burn their bodies, completely cremating them. Morris told George to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation, and the Sodders waited for four days. But George and his wife felt that they could not bear the sight of the charred remains of the home anymore, and he piled five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it into a memorial garden for his lost children. Four days later, the local coroner held a meeting to reach a judgment on the co what the cause of the fire was, and the judgment was that the fire had been caused by an accident because of faulty wiring. However, among the jurors was a man who had threatened George and told him that his house would be burned down and his children destroyed in, retribu in retribution for his anti-Mussolini remarks. So scary guys on the council for saying, yep, it was totally faulty wiring. No big deal. Death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th, 1945, less than a week after the initial blaze. The local newspaper contradicted itself. It initially said that all the bodies had been found, and then in the same story, it reported that only part of one body was recovered. But George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral of their children on January 2nd, 1946. The surviving children were in attendance. As they began to rebuild their lives after this unimaginable loss, the Sodder family started to question the official findings about the fire. If it had been caused by an electrical problem, why had the family's Christmas lights remained on during the fire's early stages? The power should have gone out, right? Yeah, that's what I would think. Then they found the ladder that had been missing from the side of the house on the night of the fire, and it was at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away, as though someone had just tossed it over the side. Then a telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone line had not been burned through by the fire. It appeared to be cut by someone who was willing and able to climb 14 feet up a pole before reaching out two feet and cutting the line. One source reported that neighbors had seen a man stealing a pulley system from the property around the time of the fire, and that man was identified and arrested and admitted to the theft. He claimed that he had been the one who cut the phone line. He thought it was a power line, but he denied having anything to do with the fire. And then mystery ensues because there's not actually a record of any suspect that ever did that. 
that's kind of just like hearsay. There's not an official record that's like, we caught this guy, this is his name, this is what he said. Even if it had existed, though, why would he have wanted to cut like a utility line to the house if you're just stealing a pulley system? Yeah. Kind of seems silly. Other than like maybe to turn their lights off, maybe to turn, maybe he thought he was turning their lights off, maybe he was preventing them from calling police. In 1968, Jenny said that if this mystery thief had cut the power line, she and her husband, along with their other four children, would have never been able to make it out of the house. Jenny also had trouble accepting that the fire chief's belief was that all traces of the children's body had been completely burned by the fire. Many of the household appliances had been found, and they had been recognizable in the ash. There were also identifiable fragments of their tin roof. She compared and contrasted results of the fire with a newspaper account of a similar house fire. Um, it had been around the same time, and that fire had killed a family of seven. But skeletal remains of all of the victims had been found in that case. So she was confused as to why they had been found in that case, but not, but not in hers. As she continued to research what might have happened to her children, Jenny would burn small piles of animal bones to see if they would be completely consumed by the flames, and none of them ever were. So she contacted a local crematorium with her questions about how the bodies burned or how bodies in general burned. And they told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, um, which was longer and hotter than what they believed the house fire was. And I did look it up because I was like, you know, I'm not saying I don't believe this crematorium in the 40s to 60s, but I also yeah. kind of just want to know what they say about it now. And it said that, it does take, for to cremate a human, it takes between one and a half to two hours. Um, the body's placed in a retort, which is then heated to between 1,400 and 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And at this temperature, the body burns and the bones turn to ash. So it did say that the bones turn to ash when you cremate someone. After the body has been cremated, the ashes are placed in the urn and returned to a family. Um, an average house fire can reach temperatures between 1,500 and 3,000 degrees. It really just depends on how destructive the fire is. And the hottest part is always going to be like at the ceiling or at the top of the house. So it's kind of like I'm, I'm seeing it. Like if maybe if they were at the top of the house, maybe it was hot enough to fully cremate these kids. But the trucks... The trucks wouldn't start. Why wouldn't the trucks start? <coughs> also, I would think the floor would give out. Yeah, that's true. Like it would so drop they would through. Have, they would have dropped Again, through the like floor. Crumbled in. And it's weird that the appliances, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know. I don't know what. No, you're right. It all plays into that. What? It all plays into the mystery. Like if the appliances were there, surely that's hot enough to melt an appliance. Is a bone, does a bone take more? Maybe we know a crematorium person. Maybe they can message Someone can us. help us out with this, yeah. <laughs> with burning points of various things. But, you know, I hadn't thought about the floor caving in. You're right. Like, if it had started in the middle where mm -hmm. their bedrooms were and hit that floor, wouldn't it have fallen in? Because I'm assuming it was a wood floor. Mm -hmm. The whole house was wood. Yeah, so. 
Mm. Um, we might think about the truck. George's belief that the trucks had been tampered with, and that's why they didn't start. But one of George's sons-in-law told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he, over time, had come to believe that because they were rushing to start these vehicles, he thinks that they might have flooded the engines just based on how the engines worked at that time and mm-hmm. trying to do it in a rush. And if it was cold, yeah, you know, the water's frozen, so it could be cold. Are they, you know, like regular trucks? Are they diesel trucks? Like Another thing that we're not experts in. No, I <laughs> maybe they didn't have diesel trucks then because I think you have to plug in a diesel truck. I don't really know. <laughs> I'm clearly not a car person. <laughs> no, but you're right. Like... What happened to the trucks? What? How did? How? Where are the bodies? Like, did they all completely burn away? And then the wrong number at twelve thirty. Someone had called and laughed into the phone, and they were like, "Maybe this is connected to the fire." But investigators later found that woman who had made the call, and she was like, "Oh yeah, that was definitely a wrong number. That was my bad. Sorry." Just like a terrible night to make a wrong number for you. Yeah, sorry, man. Like you heard the glasses clinking. I was ham sammied. <laughs> I apologize for your loss. It's different between you can't say I'm sorry and I apologize. They mean two different things. I yeah. apologize insinuates that you've done you've done something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but spring arrived and the solders planted flowers in the soil that they had piled over the house. But further developments in early 1946 reinforced the family's belief that the children they were memorializing might in fact be alive somewhere. Some news came to light that indicated that the fire was set deliberately. A bus driver that had been passing through late Christmas Eve said that he had seen people throwing balls of fire at the house. And when the snow melted, little Sylvia found a hard, small, dark green rubber ball-like object in some nearby brush. George, recalling his wife's account of that loud thump on the roof before the fire, said it looked like a pineapple bomb or some kind of fire-starting device used in combat. The family later claimed that, contrary to the fire marshal's conclusions, the fire had started on the roof. But there was no way to prove that now. Then there were witnesses who claimed to have seen the missing solder children themselves, One woman had been watching the fire from the road when she said she saw the missing children peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said that she had served the Sauter children breakfast on Christmas morning, and she said that they had gotten out of a car with a Florida license plate. When they were no longer, when they felt like they were no longer being heard, the Sauters hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley to look into the case. Tinsley informed the family that the insurance salesman who had threatened George over his anti-Mussolini sentiments had been on the coroner's jury that ruled in the fire. He learned about rumors that despite his report to the Sodders, there had been, despite reports to the Sodders that there had been no remains in the ashes, Chief Morris had allegedly found a heart, which he packed into a metal box and secretly buried. And they learned that because Morris had apparently confessed it to a local minister, and that minister told George. So George and Tinsley went to Chief Morris and confronted him, and he was like, yep, that's true, I did do that. And then offered to show them 
where the box was. And so they went. They dug it up, and they took what they had found inside the metal box to a local funeral director. And that funeral director was like, this is a fresh beef liver. This has never been exposed to fire in its entire life. And rumors circulated that Morris had admitted that the box hadn't come from the fire. He had supposedly placed it there in hopes that like George would see it and accept that his children had died in the fire and he was just trying to get them to accept it. Not the way. That is not the way to do it. No. You don't bury a beef liver and tell them it's their kid's heart. That's messed up. No, because I mean, they don't even look the same. That's very Snow White too. It is very like a heart in a a heart in a metal box. Bring it back to me. uh, I think maybe maybe fire chief needs some therapy too. Mm -hmm. And driving lessons. And driving. (laughs) Not one person was like, you know what, chief? Let me teach you how to drive this. Maybe a DWI. He couldn't. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Sounds like too wild to be true. Like. I think that's what keeps, like, everyone coming back to this case and saying, what happened? I don't understand. If it was this, then what about this? It's just all of these things. It's too too many little things that make it peculiar. Mm -hmm. At one point after the fire, George saw a magazine photo of a group of young ballet dancers in New York City, and one of the girls looked like his missing daughter, Betty. So he drove all the way to this girl's school and demanded to see her himself. And he was refused. They were like, absolutely not. Get out of here. He also tried to get the FBI to investigate what he believed was a kidnapping. And FBI director J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letters. He said, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. If the local authorities requested the bureau's assistance, he added, he would, of course, direct agents to assist, but they, the local police and fire departments didn't. They were like, we don't think we need you. We think that we have this covered. Mm-hmm. Which made people think, oh, maybe they're covering something up. In August 1949, George persuaded Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. And a very thorough examination ensued. Artifacts, including a dictionary that had belonged to the children and some coins were found. A dictionary surely would have burnt, right? Oh, for sure. You're burning bones. I would think a dictionary would be the first to Yeah. They did find several small bone fragments, um, and they were determined to be human vertebrae. And those bone fragments were sent to Marshall T. Newman, who is a specialist at the Smithsonian Institution. And he was like, yep, these are lumbar vertebrae from the same person uh, based on, it said, the transverse recesses were fused. And the age of that individual at death would have been 16 or 17 years old. Said the top limit might have been around 22, um, but given that age range, it was unlikely that the bones were from any of the missing children, except Maurice was 14, which isn't 16 or 17, but... What if they're a big 14-year-old? Yeah, right? If he had advanced, if his body had advanced enough, then maybe it could look Mm -hmm. like a 16-year-old, you know? 
I've seen 14-year-olds that I could, you know, you're like, that's an adult. They're not. I just saw this thing of this, like, 12-year-old football player who has, like, tattoos and a mustache and, like. He has tattoos? Yeah, tattoos. And he's, like, 12. Like, I did not believe it. Like, my husband had to show me the article where it's like, no, like, this guy is really 12. Like, this man, this grown man looks like he could be my dad is 12. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what you guys have in the water. <laughs> he's my 12 year old. His marble reds on the side of on the sidelines. Just like- my 12 year old doesn't look like that. And if that's what 12 year olds look like in football, I'm we're not playing football. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if this vertebrae looked like a 16 year old. So that was another. Um, but they did also note that their the bone didn't show any exposure to flame. And it was strange that, like, only these vertebrae bones were the ones found. He thought that a wood fire of such a short duration would have left full skeletons of all children behind. That's what this pathologist said. He would assume that all of Because 45 minutes, right? Yeah. and But then it smoldered for seven hours until they got there. Yeah, you know? that's, that's true. So I don't know if it could have created, like, an oven, oven-like environment in the basement. Um, the report concluded that the vertebrae had instead most likely come from the dirt that George had used to cover the site. And some people thought that they had been in the dirt because that dirt had come from a cemetery. And so maybe it just had like, which also not a cute look, George. I know he's just like desperate to find anything, but I'm like, this isn't good for you, sir. (laughs) So it was close to the state level. They closed it at a state level. They were like, nope, you're done. But then the FBI was like, you know what? Okay, we have jurisdiction. And we'll investigate it as a possible interstate kidnapping. But they dropped the case after two years of just following fruitless leads. They're like, nope, nothing is coming out of this. We're going to drop it. Official efforts to resolve the case were terminated. But the Sauter family did not give up hope. They had flyers printed with pictures of the children. They offered up to a $10,000 reward for information that would have settled even one of them. If somebody could give them information on even one of their children, they would give a $10,000 reward. In 1952, they put up a billboard at the site of the house and along U.S. Route 60 near Anstead, West Virginia. And this billboard became a landmark for traffic through Fayetteville on what is known today as State Route 16. Outsourcing. Sometimes it almost feels low quality and exploitative to say. We get it. You want to maintain the integrity of your company. But hey, we have a secret. You don't have to do it all. There is a way to outsource and it be high quality and value aligned. Unlike most business process outsourcing companies, Partner Hero's management team includes individuals from the startup world, so they're more than a service provider. They're also a thought partner for the startups they serve. Brands that care about quality customer experience choose Partner Hero. Partner Hero has flexible terms and the ability to scale quickly, which is perfect for startups. Quality assurance is baked into every program. Running a company is overwhelming, but Partner Hero can help. Their expertise is a game changer. Get out of your support inbox so you can focus on running your business. Partner Hero is perfect for companies that are experiencing rapid growth or preparing for scaling up, or maybe you just have a busy season and need a few more hands on deck. 
If you're ready to bring in an outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, check out Partner Hero. Head on over to partnerhero.com slash gruesome to book a free consultation with their solutions team. Mention you heard about Partner Hero from Gruesome and they'll waive the startup fee. Ida Crutchfield, a woman who ran a Charleston hotel, claimed to have seen the children approximately one week after the fire. She said, I don't remember the exact date. The children came in around midnight with two men and two women. All of them seemed to be of, quote unquote here, of Italian ex- extraction. And Ida claimed that she tried to talk to the children, but one of the men looked at her in a hostile manner and turned around and began talking fast in Italian. And then the whole party stopped talking to me. They left the hotel early the next morning. Investigators today do not consider her story credible as she had only first seen photos of the children two years after the fire, and it was five years before she came forward. So they didn't believe that what she was saying was true. George continued to follow up on leads in person. Like, he would go to whoever had a lead and talk to them. And he met a woman from St. Louis, Missouri, named Martha. He said that Martha was being held in a covenant there, there was a bar patron in Texas who heard over overheard two people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia. George heard later that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his, and he made he went and made them prove that they were her own children and not his. In 1967, George went to Texas to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas. George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, were unable to speak with her, but police were able to help them find the two men that she had talked about. They denied being the missing sons, but Grover Paxton said years later that doubts about that denial lingered in his mind for the rest of his life. One of the biggest pieces of evidence that you'll hear about this case is this letter. Jenny got a letter in the mail. It was addressed to her. It was postmarked Central City, Kentucky, and there was no return address. Inside of this letter was a picture of a young man who appeared to be about 30 years old, and his features bore a striking resemblance to Lewis, who actually would have been in his 30s if he had survived. And on the back was written, Lewis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie. I think it's 11IL boys. I don't know. It looks like LLIL boys. And then the numbers A901132, or it could be 135. So the family hired another P.I. to go to Central City and look into it. But this P.I. just never came back. He essentially took their money and ran. Uh. But the picture gave them hope. And they added it to the billboard and they blew it up and hung it over their fireplace. Because they really believe, like, this is, it looks just like him. This is him. George admitted several times that he felt like he could no longer continue his investigation. He, like, time is running out for us. We, we just want to know if they did die in the fire, just someone convince us. Otherwise, we just want to know what happened to them. And George Sauter died in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children continued to seek answers to their questions about their missing children. 
And after George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home. She put up fencing around it and she added additional rooms. And for the rest of her life, she wore black, mourning her children and tending to the garden at the site of her former house. After her death in 1989, the family just finally took the billboard down. Only John Sauter, uh, the 21-year-old at the time, never talked about the night of the fire. All he said was like, the family should accept what happened and we should all move on with our lives. Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest of the surviving Sauter siblings, died last year in 2021. And she said her earliest memory was this fire and that she and her father used to stay up late and talk about what might have happened. And she believed that her siblings survived that night. She continued to assist in efforts to find them and publicize the case as much as she could. In 2006, her daughter said that she promised she promised my grandparents that she wouldn't let the story die and that she would do everything she could. And she did that until she died. And there are theories which we can kind of pull out about what happened. One of the big ones is that the Sicilian mafia kidnapped these kids and took them back to Italy because he hated Mussolini. But Mussolini got kicked out by the Italian people. He was literally voted out. It's not like he was well-loved. Yeah, that's... uh, The thought was the insurance salesman threw the pineapple bomb because he wouldn't buy what he needed. And then there are a couple of extra theories that I read about... um, People thought that it was poor execution from the FBI and they were trying to actually wipe out the entire Sicilian mafia and they thought George was a part of the Sicilian mafia and they were trying to burn their whole family to the ground. Um, And part of that was like the fascist reign in Italy and them coming down. They were trying to get rid of it in the U.S. So that that's a theory and then there was another theory that the Sauter family had too many mouths to feed and not enough money and that the kids were sent to catholic orphanages in chicago because the postcard of louis has that it looks like two lowercase l's i l and people think that that means illinois so thoughts i think they died in the fire <laughs> i do too and i think that it's very sad that this family really held on to that grief and never got the answers that they deserved and never had anything conclusive to say like hey this is what happened but I do believe that they died in the fire and that their remains were charred I can't I just know that how hot fires can get quickly and the damage that can be done I do think that there is room for doubt, but I don't know. I don't think the family sent their own kids away or why would they have went through so much effort, you know? that Yeah, he, until all of them died. They were obviously, I don't think that that happened either. I don't think that the family sent them away. I don't think that they were sent to orphanages or I just sent don't back see to Italy, whatever. How would someone, you would have had to have a whole team of people go in there to kidnap four kids. Five yeah, kids. exactly. And I see if this was my family, if these were my children, I would look for every possible I agree. outlet. Like, well, what about this? Well, it could be this, but this could have happened. And I honestly kind of feel bad for John, too, who said, like, hey, 
you know, we yelled up at them and we should accept what happened. Like, this is what happened. Because um, I'm sure that that was probably a lot for him to have to, you know, you know, haunted their family forever for his whole life and their whole lives. I feel like the only thing that's like a little weird to me is I feel like they would have heard them screaming. Yeah. Yes. I agree. That is weird. But then they said like the fire started at the top. Did it start at the top? The chief fire marshal doesn't. I think someone did intentionally set their house on fire. Yeah, I do too. I think someone burned their house down. I don't know who it was. I don't know if it was the Sicilian Mafia or the FBI or the insurance salesman. But I think their house was set on fire and their children died as a result. Or it's like early wiring time. You know, it, it could have been faulty wire. <laughs> it could have been. Just, I don't know what kind of, yeah. I feel like if this is one of those cases where, honestly, it kind of, it's not the same at all, but it's like the John Bonet case where you can make whatever you want to believe fit this exact yes. thing. And that, I mean, that's what creates like legends, right? Like mm-hmm. the folklore that starts becoming around it or that starts being invented around it and the constant like, oh, but it was this. Oh, but, you know, they had a cousin who you know, thought that they weren't being nice to their kids and then they came in and took them back to Italy in the night. Like, that wasn't even a theory. I just made that up. But I could see it. (laughs) Yeah. I could make it apply. You know, it's heartbreaking and sad and to have, to lose half of your children in one night. I hope that I never have to find out. Um, But yeah, I don't know keeps a lot of people up at night even still there's still people who want to know i mean hbo just did a documentary about this this year i think i mean i could be easily convinced that something happened <laughs> it wouldn't right? take i know it wouldn't take much because there is you that doing baseline it. there you were yeah. doing it when we were talking you were like but wouldn't the ceiling have caved in but wouldn't they have heard their screams it's like a contradiction the whole thing is a contradiction and i think that's what's so fascinating about it Mm-hmm. How old would the kids be now? They w- would not be alive. They would be. Um, <coughs> well, if the mom died in 1989. Yeah, they, you're right. The youngest one was born in 1923. The youngest. Oh, okay. So a hun- they'd be like a hunt over 100. Okay, yeah. I see. And like maybe in the 80s, you know, and the 60s and the 70s and 80s, even the I 90s. I just feel like if they were, if they were alive, like if they if the kids were alive at some point they would have contacted someone, yeah. Or like someone would have found their great grandma's trunk full of just like letters or journals or something that was like, oh, I don't think she was who we thought she was. Yeah. Mm. Sketch. It's weird. Mm-hmm. It's a real Christmas mystery one. <laughs> I think the less thrilling i guess from like a storyteller's point of view would Mm -hmm. be like i think the most likely outcome because i do feel like they probably perished in the fire unfortunately yeah i agree i agree and that is very sad Mm -hmm. especially because it was seven hours before it was put out yeah that's kind of had the firefighters gotten there Timely. Let's say they got there in 45 minutes. 
like they're too late, but they can spray it all down, cool it out, and they can start looking through more of the Mm -hmm. rubble. I feel like they might have found something. Yeah. That wasn't, that wouldn't have gone away in the smoldering ash. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it all fell, they had a basement, it all fell into like the basement level. Yeah. I don't know, this is a weird one. Mm-hmm. Okay, guys, say it with me. Convenience. We're busy. You don't want to lug around your big blender, and you sure as heck don't want to stand in line or pay the prices at a smoothie bar. You want quick, nutritious, and you want it on the go. I have to tell you about my hands-down favorite new kitchen gadget, the Blendjet 2. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. I'm already counting down to warm weather so I can blend up a cocktail from the boat or the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. It lasts 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. Because remember, we love convenience. There are 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from. I am obsessed. Meg is obsessed. We've been texting about this nonstop. My husband already picked out one that matches his style because we both have to be able to make margaritas. I mean, nutritious smoothies. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code GRUESOME12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code GRUESOME12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. I'm excited to hear what everyone else thinks. Yeah, or if there's like any extra tidbits or rumors or... What did we miss? How wrong did we pronounce Fayetteville? Is it Fayetteville? (laughs) I don't know. Is it We're going to find out. It's, it's the F-A-Y. F-A-Y. Yeah, it is F-A-Y-E-T. Oh, it's Fayetteville. Sorry, I could have told you that. No, that's okay. <laughs> it's, uh, I always say this word wrong too, but it's, it's a colloquialism. It's like the way different people in different areas pronounce things. I don't know if that's the right word. But um, I'm going to look that up. Huh? It's like uh, wash and wash. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I, every time I said that, though, I'm like, I cannot wait for people to look from West Virginia to be like, it's not how you say it. <laughs> maybe it's because I like I lived in South. I think there's a Fayetteville in North or South Carolina. Like I lived in both of those places and it's spelled the same and it's called Fayetteville. But I don't know. They say stuff. They say stuff different. And like even like I would say things and they're like us. Like wrong. I would say Beaufort, like Beaufort, and I was like, what? <laughs> no. Whoops. Yeah, it's Whoops. Okay. It happens. It'd be like that sometimes. It do be like that. I'm the okay. one that gets destroyed with pronunciation. <laughs> I. It's not that it's being pronounced It's not wrong. malicious. It's yeah. not. It, it's just not how people in that area pronounce it which 
it's not right there, but it's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You can yell at me if you want. I don't know. It's up to you. I will tell you about my nightmare of a Christmas thing. And yeah, I, let's hear it. I will let you know before I start this story that I heard your voice chastising me in my head before I even started. <laughs> I could hear oh, it. Oh, no. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to tell Connie this story, but I'm going to. Okay. So my dad, for the last several years, has told me that he wants a recliner for Christmas. And every year I'm like, that is too big. I cannot afford to buy you a recliner. I can't do it. But this year, I was like, you know what? Maybe if my brother and I go halvesies on it, maybe we can make something happen. And I was on those auction sites I go on, and they had like a furniture, I don't know if it was like a furniture store that went out of business or what, but like all this stuff, totally beautiful. And I was like, oh, wow, this chair is really nice. I'm going to try to bid on it. And so I bid on it, and I was winning for a long time, and then... The day before, someone outbid me, and I was like, oh, I'll just wait until right before, and I'll get in there, and I'll do it. Well, I did that, and I won the bid. I won the chair, but I paid more than I wanted to. Like, I went above because I wanted to win, and that's yeah. what – it's like gambling. Like, when you do auctions, it's like gambling. You're like, no, mm -hmm. I win. Me. Yeah. So I paid too much, and then we, my brother and I go to Indianapolis to pick this up, and we get in there and I'm like, oh my gosh, this stuff is so nice. Like, I really wish I would have gotten a couch because I really want a new couch. I wish I would have got like these beautiful bar stools. I'm like, these are so cute. Like, I was loving everything. And we're looking for this chair in the lots. And in the midst of all this beautiful scratch and dent furniture, I find the most raggedy ass chair I have ever seen in my life. Full cut up the side. USB doesn't work shit's flaking no. off it was terrible it was terrible and I was just like I love my dad he does a lot for me if I need something he's always like he hooks it up and I just felt like the worst daughter ever but it was an auction so it was all sales are final and they didn't include pictures of these rips all it said on the thing was like some scuff marks and I was like, oh, scuff marks. I bet I can like leather condition those out because it was yeah. this leather recliner. I could not just leather condition them out. So I brought what it home. fuck? Did you raise hell? Because I would have burnt that place to the ground. No, I did not at all. I was just like, I looked at my brother who was not happy. And I was like, we can fix this. And I put it in my car and I took it home. To and the salon. To the salon. Yes. And for the last week... I've spent my entire week uh, leather gluing, patching, dyeing. I made a pocket. I have done every single thing I can possibly think of to this chair. And earlier this morning, I called my brother, like, pretty much crying. And I was like, I just feel like maybe I should just go to the store and just buy a new one and sell this one on Facebook Marketplace. And he's like, Christmas is tomorrow. Just give it to him and tell him the story and tell him that for his birthday, we'll get him back. Well, get him a better one. <laughs> and I was like, I just feel bad. Uh, and yeah, so this chair is sitting in my living room right now. And every time I look at it, it's a reminder of my failure. <laughs> it's not your failure. It's their misadvertisement. I would have lost my shit in there. There is no, I've been like, 
few scuffs. Few scuffs. <laughs> it was not lit full rip up the side. Like I passed no, it. I, there's I was no fucking way. I would have been. I would have not. I'd have been like, no, 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 you little sons of bitches. Like, no, nope, 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 nope. This Ew, is false advertising. Had I gotten it for a price that would have been like, oh, this is like a rummage sale price, or this is like, no. Uh, how much did I, you spend on it? I have to know. I spent four hundred dollars. No, I could have bought a brand new chair. <laughs> I spent two hundred dollars, and my brother spent two hundred dollars. <laughs> but even oh, my brother, like oh my God, have seen like the disappointment in his eyes. He was just like, because he was like six three, and I like looked up at him, and he like looked down at me with just like, "This is your fault," <laughs> and it was my fault. How does it look now after you fix stuff on it? It's not that bad. The only thing that's bothering me is that the back like panel flap that like you like lift up and you can see all the mechanics on the very bottom mm-hmm. back of it. Like it's flaking because that's the cheap part of the chair. Like that's the part that they don't like put the effort into. And so I've dyed it so it blends, but it's still like flaky. And I was just like, shit. <laughs> Your so, dad is going to think this is hilarious. I hope so. I hope you're right because in my head I heard his voice as just like as like initially excited and then just incredibly disappointed that he wasn't <laughs> that I felt he wasn't worth getting a new chair for. <laughs> but he was the one who showed me these auctions. He was the one who was like, "Oh yeah, they're great. You can get great deal." And I've bought all of my lighting fixtures in my house from auctions like these. I always buy stuff like house related from them so I was like oh this will be great I don't feel like this is you I feel like this is them it's like a, this is a it's them a them thing <laughs> yeah no like for sure like a few scuffs is not like Fully I would ripped expect and yeah scratched. yeah it was yeah that's it's they um... were probably like <laughs> when you guys were honestly I know I think they were driving it up honestly like it was someone who worked there that was like let's see if we can get them higher let's see if we can get someone to take this piece of shit home and I did and I just went, you had to win because I had to win I know I bid I'm once an and idiot. then I'm done <laughs> my when I started I was like I'll go to 250 that's what I'm comfortable with wait a second what was the starting bid Meg the starting bid was like $17. So I bid 17 and then someone bid 50. And I was like, I can go to 50. And then I like literally in the last hour, it was at $55. And the last hour was 55 too. It was 300, but after taxes and they're, they're like fees or whatever, it was 369. And then I spent $400 on supplies to fix it or $40 on supplies to fix it. So 400 in general. Is it comfortable? <laughs> It's really comfortable. It's so comfortable. <laughs> Does the reclining part of it work? The reclining part works. It had a USB port in the side of it that did not work. So I took it out and I bought a cap and I put the cap in and I'm going to be like, it has a spot where you can put a USB port if you want not. <laughs> but it reclines. Hopefully after my four-year-old has stopped jumping on it, it will still recline because I have to keep being like get off of that that's not yours stop oh my uh, goodness I'll send you uh I'll send you the video I need I to see know. the 
I need to see this. I understand spending that much because your dad is great. Like, I like, I just wanted to give him something that he like has asked for and asked for and asked for. And I've been like, no, no, I can't. I can't. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. And then I failed. I got to look up a recliner real quick. Just like a quick one. No, please don't. Because it makes me feel bad because I like looked and I could buy a recliner for $400. You know what, though? This has a story to it, and it has history, and it's... And the really nice one, and my husband, he was like, well, let's just go to the furniture store. And I was like, we're going to go to the furniture store, and at the furniture store, they will be $1,200. They will be $800. Mm-hmm. Like, I could get one at Big Lots or Home Depot for $400, and it would probably be similar to what I have yeah. now. Yeah. Was, I uh, just wouldn't have be without the rip. Yeah, I would just I wouldn't have had to work. But for it wouldn't have straight. the care. Yeah, I wouldn't have the character of it. There's a lot of love and tears. A lot of tears. <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's a great story. I think it's Thanks. perfect. Thank you. We'll uh, we'll see if he agrees. When is your guys' <laughs> Christmas tomorrow? Tomorrow at noon. I need to know. Yeah. I want you to re- I want you to record. <laughs> hey, share. The chair comes with a story. The chair comes with a story. Start with the story. Cause it's a good story. <laughs> I honestly feel like he'll be mad at me for not getting a better deal. He's probably <laughs> like, you let them drive you from 17 to 400 because that's the thing that I'm most like, Meg. I know. And it is. You let that's your competitiveness why I, get the best of you. 100% I did. That's why I can't gamble. Because I'm like, oh, I'll beat the system, but I'll never beat the system. <laughs> no. I went gambling with my parents. Like, when we, I went to Vegas with them. And my dad is like one of those, like, that's the sound of me hitting the slot machine button. Just like that fast. Just goes. And he's like, that's all you have to do. Bet big and bet fast and you'll win. And I was like, I don't have that level of confidence. That sounds dangerous. That I think these are different tax bracket problems. <laughs> yeah. I went to because, the casino one time and I was like, I will bring $40 in cash because that is what I feel comfortable losing. And I left that casino with $120. And I was like, I'm never yeah. coming back. I won. <laughs> Can't do that again. <laughs> My dad wins like thousands of dollars. Like Thousands of dollars. And then he loses it the next time he goes to Vegas. (laughs) He never loses that big. Like, they never, they break even or he wins. It's fucking insane. It's insane. Big and bet fast. Connie dad mantra. That's what he says in the mirror when he's getting ready every day. Bet big and bet fast. (laughs) Bet big and bet fast. Not me. I'm like penny slots like a quarter. (laughs) Five cents. Yeah, He's I like betting like a dollar, five dollars. So I'm like, this can't be the same person who wouldn't take me out to eat growing up. <laughs> this can't be the person who said no to McDonald's every single time I asked. <laughs> but I think about the amount, the amount my kids eat McDonald's versus the amount I was allowed to eat <laughs> McDonald's as a kid. I'm just like, we are not the same. No, but like my daughter will come to me like three days a week. She's like, can we go get lunch? And I'm like, yeah, where do you want to go? Wherever you want. And I'm like, I'll take you somewhere for lunch. McDonald's. McDonald's. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. <laughs> Fuck it. How I think else when- are you going to get your Coke for your Diet yeah. Coke? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a win-win. I feel bad because like 
I understand she it's hard. Like I know they should be eating these like healthy, nutritious meals, but it's like she won't. <laughs> <laughs> like she won't. They say, like, give them options. They'll find something they like. No. I asked her once, I was like, you can't get up. Like I tried the hard thing with both my middle son and my daughter. You can't get up until you eat. And they fucking sat there all night. Yeah. Yep. Strong-willed children. They're beautiful. They're they just sat there. And it's not like catering to them. It's not like I'm like, but it's like they have to eat. Have to they're hungry, them. right? No, they're not hungry. Not for that they, trash. <laughs> no. They're full off the will to do whatever the fuck they want. And they will just sit there. They're hot. They're full of power. That's what it is. Yeah. Like, my stomach is full of just the joy it brings me to say no to my mom. My daughter told my mother-in-law something that is really the mantra I want to leave you all with for this holiday season. <laughs> she was trying to get her to eat. And she just very, she was like, Nan, because my, my mother-in-law was like, you can try this. Like, why don't you try this? I love this. You should try it. And my mother-in-law is Mary Poppins. Like, that's not, like, that's how she is. She's a Mary Poppins. My daughter looked at her and said, Nan, how about you eat what you want to eat and I'll eat what I want to eat? <laughs> and I was like, how do you argue with that logic? Because as an adult, I don't eat anything. Like, you, I don't, you don't want, right, exactly. It's hard to push it. I'm just like, yeah, you're right. Okay. Your four-year-old logic wins. Yeah. See you later. Earlier, my husband told our four-year-old, hey, we we have to be good because, like, Christmas is coming, right? And she went, I'll still get presents. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, you will, but what are we going to do? We need to build a bunker for their teenage years <laughs> although <laughs> so we can hide. My four-year-old with Christmas, this elf on the shelf, she thinks like it's like creepily watching her. It is. So it's supposed I'll, I'll to be. I'll say things like George is going to go tell Santa because that's our Yeah, that's why, that's George. the whole point of the elf on the shelf. And then she's like, okay, 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 I'll do it. I'm sorry. I'll do it. I'll do it. And I was like, <laughs> George is about to stay year round. <laughs> We're going to get a secret bunny that watches us. We're going to get a leopard. Well, we have the leprechaun too because that's a thing now. Oh, I don't do the. We just do George, and that's it. And if your kids tell my kids about anything other than George, they can't come over anymore. <laughs> well, don't let YouTube because that's what did it. It was YouTube talked about people who have leprechauns. Oh, yeah. She only watches other people play with toys, which is still like a weird thing to me too. <laughs> no, we're full into the family, the, watching the other families do things that we don't. <laughs> It's like, why do you need to do it? <laughs> see what happens. See what they're doing. That's it. It's right there. <laughs> it's all right there. I um, I I, we talked about this last week. Like, I don't feel as Christmassy this year. We had my first. Like, I was feeling better last. So, like last week, I was sick, and then like over the weekend, I was like, okay, this is it. Like, I feel good. We had my husband's family over for Christmas. It went great, and then the next day, it was like, just kidding. Like. There's the bus that just hit you. But even as I was like wrapping presents for that, I was kind of like, meh, I don't feel it this year. And then I still have all of my gifts to wrap for these munchkins who like to I know, fight. That's my and goal tonight. Pick their nose. 
just wrap and wrap and wrap. We're doing, um, I saw it on Pinterest because usually I make their gifts like all cute and matchy. I bought, looking around, I bought three rolls of wrapping paper, like three separate types of wrapping paper. Yeah. Not doing bows, nothing. They're opening their stocking first. They'll find out which piece of paper is theirs and then just fucking have at it, man. Yep. That's what we do. Same. They each get their own color and the one that's theirs is in the stocking. It's the best way. Yeah. I I can't wait. I'm even doing it for my husband. (laughs) He's got his own special color. Um, I got him this refrigerator. (laughs) I usually like it. Like it's a. It plugs into this solar thing that he has. It's like he has this thing called a jackery, which is it's like solar powered. It's like a thing you can plug stuff into. It's like a I don't know. Uh, it's like a jumper cable box. It looks like, but you can like plug stuff into it. You can run electricity off of it because they do a lot of Boy Scout stuff. Well, this fridge plugs into that. It was stupid expensive because. He told me he wanted it on Black Friday, and I put it off. And I was like, oh, for sure, yeah, I'll get that for you. And then I waited too long, and I had to pay full price for it. And I was like, ugh, this would Ouch. Hurt. And then it came, and I can't even wrap it. So I'm just going to, like, throw gonna throw a blanket over it because it's so fucking big. Like, I thought it was, like, a tiny little mini fridge. Nope. This thing is huge. Like huge. I said, it makes sense why it was so much. Yeah, it's super nice. Like, he saw the box because, like, it just came. And he's like, you really got it? And I was like, anything for you, babe. (laughs) (laughs) Ow. As you're crying. Um, Someone asked. Actually, someone messaged and asked where you got your super cheap universal koozies. Oh, Frost Buddy. Sponsor I know. I guess somebody said that they're expensive. And what, how much, I don't remember when you, you told me. No, I bought, I went the 1st of December. Let me see. Got the universal koozie. I got what, I didn't get one of their new colors. I got one of their retired colors. It was like on clearance because that's how I roll. Um, But then it kept popping up. Have you ever shopped on Life is Good before? Uh, I've seen it. I don't actually shop there. My mother-in-law does. When you shop at Life is Good because- my husband shops there because he likes those like he's got like a grateful dad shirt like uh-huh. he's got like a pool Cute. shark shirt you know like all these like stupid shirts but when you check out they're like for a limited time only one shirt ten dollars and then you buy it and it's like wait just for you one more shirt ten dollars so they get him with all of this stuff because it's like and that's he's what this extra frost, susceptible like, yeah that's what this <laughs> frost buddy did to me i bought one it was like seventeen dollars and then it was like, hey, low, low price, we'll give you another one for that. And I was like, fuck yeah, I don't even know what I need this for. But yeah, I'll buy <laughs> three more. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I will. You talked well, me into it. When I'm not sick, I'll do a video about it. Like, a, I'll put it on an Instagram because it's super cool. Like, it's it's awesome. I also found out they have 30 ounce of these Stanley Cups, which seems a little bit more logical. So I'm probably going to buy one of those, too. You have um, children lurking outside of your office door. I've seen them three times now. So, Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll let you go handle that. Yeah, on that note, guys. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Gruesome Horrific True Crime, a Zencaster-powered podcast. 
Seriously, we wouldn't be here without them. Zencaster is simple to use and makes it easy to edit your own podcast. Zencaster gives you automatic, high-quality post-production sound, transcription, and HD video recordings of all of your episodes. If you want to start a podcast, and we think you should, click the link in the show notes or at our website and use the code GRUESOME with a capital G for 30% off your first three months. We love you, beautiful strangers. And if you love us too, here are some ways that you can support Gruesome. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or a five-star rating on Spotify. This helps other true crime connoisseurs find us. Follow us at Gruesome Podcasts on Instagram or TikTok and talk to us on our posts. Join the Patreon. Sign up to join our True Crime Sticker of the Month Club and gain access to bonus episodes and exclusive Patreon perks. Or if a one-time donation is more your thing, we have a Venmo at Gruesome Podcast and a PayPal via our email, gruesomepodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of which, we love hearing from you. It seriously makes our whole life. So send us your questions, comments, suggestions, or just ask our opinion on whether that person you met on Tinder is a serial killer or not. Tune in next week, and don't forget, lock your windows, lock your doors, and on Wednesdays, we're, we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. 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 <laughs>